this was going to require essentially shutting everything down and keeping people at home. Uh, because if we didn't, the way this was spreading could again overwhelm us very quickly. Welcome back or welcome to Toughest Call, a podcast for organizational leaders where we hear stories from your leadership colleagues about career-defining decisions. I'm your host, Chaz Thorne. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Robert Strang about the decision-making that resulted in Nova Scotia entering its first lockdown at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Rob is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Nova Scotia. The tough calls that our leading health officials have had to make in the face of this pandemic have been staggering. Especially in the early days of the outbreak, these decisions needed to be made quickly and with incomplete information. Even more challenging, they needed to be implemented within structures that are classically very slow to act. And all of this is taking place in an environment where the stakes are literally life and death. What was happening with you and your staff around the time that we started hearing about this potential pandemic, this virus that was going around the world? Yeah, I mean, it really started, I remember it was December 28th, 2019, where, uh, you know, I got an email, one of these alerts that... um, uh, that would have gone to my colleagues across the country. Something has been interesting being detected in unusual in, in, in disease activity in, in Wuhan, China, um, from the World Health Organization. And it, um, then early in January, uh, you know, more information. We kind of everybody coming back from Christmas holidays. You know, the Council of Chief Medical Officers of Health, we have regular teleconferences led by the Public Health Agency of Canada, Canada, Dr. Teresa Tam. So we started to get some more information coming out of of FAC, Public Health Agency. And then we started uh, probably within the second week in January having regular conference calls, um, starting with the chief MOHs. But it became clear pretty early on that this was, you know, getting, becoming bigger. Um, And then the first thing all of us did is we've got, you know, uh, pandemic influenza plans um, that we'd had prior to, you know, H1N1 2009, and we'd revisited them and and built on them after H1N1. So uh, the very first thing we did with my team is say, okay, we got to pull out that plan and, and, and let's make sure that we're comfortable with it. Uh, and then we alerted the rest of the health system saying there's something going on that we're not sure, but let's start the starting point in Nova Scotia was let's all look at our pandemic influenza because it's built around a respiratory virus as a starting point for our plan. Uh, and start to have conversations with other, you know, the key leaders in the health system. So they were all up to speed. And, and so th- that's where it went from, from through January into February. I can't remember if it was in February or March, but you and I were actually together over a weekend and uh, at, a, at a planning event for a, a nonprofit that we both sit on the board of. And I, I remember the, your, your phone going off quite, quite a bit. And we also have a mutual uh, colleague that has a, 
a background in infectious disease uh, as a scientist. And I remember having some conversations with him about this. And when the concept of a lockdown came up and that just, that, that just sounded insane to me that that was even possible. Like, how do you, what? Like you could actually tell everyone to stay home. So when did those conversations start to come up with, with you and your colleagues across the country? Uh, we're, our thinking started off back in January, if I go back, you know, it was a public health issue. Then it became a health system issue. And then it really, as we get into March, it become, oh, this is even beyond, you know, the implications of this are even beyond the health system. And that we're going to have to think across government, across communities and across sectors if because this has the potential to overwhelm healthcare systems and that was that's the rationale so you got to think big and big and lockdowns and all those things because if you just let the virus you know run you know even if you try to control it to some extent um but if you don't really have a, a good lock in it it will it will uh, there is a new virus there's no immunity and you'll have enough people you'll just rapidly overwhelm your healthcare system which would what we'd seen what happened in Italy, especially with seniors, et cetera. So uh, pretty quickly, we went to the point of we, we're, we're going to have to use some very uh, broad uh, tools uh, and, and very restrictive tools uh, to try to get this under control. How did you go about even presenting this as an option? Because what you've, what you've just laid out is the unbelievable complexity of the the issue of locking locking down a, a community, but also all of the different um, all of the different stakeholders as well as the the far reaching effects. So, how did you even sort of position that as a possibility across government and industry? We, I didn't have to position it that much because, you know, I was directly at the request of uh, Premier McNeil, uh, you know, starting late February, we're starting to brief him directly. Uh, and he was coming to some of these conclusions on his own. Uh, he and his staff, you know, really watching the media themselves, watching things unfold, uh, recognizing that we would the, the potential, the real, very real potential for Nova Scotia to get rapidly overwhelmed. Um, and so he was prepared to make those tough decisions very early on that this was going to require, uh, essentially shutting everything down and keeping people at home. What was the level of fear like given the high degree of uncertainty that we were experiencing early on in the pandemic? This is where some of the anxiety actually, I think, uh, helped. Because everybody was very, uh, very anxious about this. And I think, by and large, people saw the potential implications. And there wasn't really any pushback, uh, at least in those early days, around just having to, you know, shut down schools. I remember it was just before we canceled March break. When kids coming back from March break, you know, no travel. When March break comes back, schools are closed down for two weeks. You know, we essentially basically shut down for the rest of March. Um, not knowing really how long it was going to uh, before we could open up. 
Um, and maybe we were a little bit naive thinking that we could uh, do this in just a, a matter of a few weeks, but we, you know, um, but that early decision actually wasn't that hard. It's just, we knew we had to act quickly and act very firmly. Uh, and certainly having the trust and the confidence uh, between myself and the premier uh, made that, uh, I think, much smoother than in perhaps some other jurisdictions when there was not necessarily the same political buy-in, if you will, to take the tough measures. This is very early days. Um, there's still a lot of question marks ab- about the virus, a lot of things that aren't known. There was a lot of back and forth on masks and so on. What was, once that was decision was made and communicated to the public that we were going to enter uh, this lockdown, what happened next? Uh, I mean, it really was, um, it's, it's, it's the reverse of, uh, if you will, of often how, you know, decisions are made where you do the policy analysis, you reach out to stakeholders, and then ultimately you make a decision and implement. We uh, made a decision and implemented. And then I spent a lot of time in those first few weeks uh, on, on, you know, uh, Zoom calls and team, Teams calls virtually with business sectors, with restaurants, you know, with colleagues across government, uh, helping them understand the virus, the situation we were in and what, why what we're doing was necessary. Um, and I think by and large, everybody understood that because they were watching themselves uh, with their own emotions and their own feelings about themselves and their families. Um, uh, as well, and that same level of, of anxiety. So there was, a, I think, a good, but I use the word trust a lot, but I, I think the way we were able to set up from the very beginning that, that we were setting clear direction we, we, I think we had a good, you know, strong rationale for why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and, 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 the, and the premier and I have been very much visibly on the same page. I think that did feed a lot into, you know, as uncomfortable it was and, and, the, and the challenges that businesses were, were, were facing. Um, they, there was by and large buy-in and an acceptance of this is just what we need to do. There was a fair bit of you know, really uh, agreement and compliance in when that, that first, the first lockdown started. And um, there certainly, you know, there was this, as it went on, there was some fatigue that set in, but we also had some really significant events happen in this province um, that challenged our resolve. There were, um, you know, some uh, local uh, protests um, that were in reaction to um, the murder of uh, George Floyd in, uh, in the U.S. Um, and even more specific to us, there was the Porta Peak massacre, uh, which was uh, the largest mass shooting in, in our country's history. And this, all of these things sort of challenged, I think, our, our resolve of staying apart. So how did, did you and, and the Premier and the rest of your colleagues handle these, these events when you started to see the population starting to fray uh, around being 
kept apart. Either that or also even just the individual um, impacts of not being able to gather with others. I think some of the other events that we had to come together around actually helped because uh, they tapped into this common sense of that we're all together. That we can, but, but the, the, the way through this, whether it's COVID or whether it's the mass shootings or other tragic you know, deaths that are impacted uh, Nova Scotia, that we need to support each other. Um, and, that, uh, and so in a way that helped all these other events uh, help amplify and I think bring that caring about each other and that putting the common good first actually maybe strengthen that. What was the most difficult point for you during those those first few months? Uh, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, uh, two things. I mean, in the middle of April with Porta Peak and everything else, it was it was almost overwhelming. That I mean, I wasn't directly involved in any of those, but the impact and just seeing the impact on families and communities on top of how people were already stretched with COVID was, um, but knowing we had to continue with the COVID response, right? You can't give up. Um, and then have, we had to deal with, uh, you know, how do you support families uh, with grieving and mourning, uh, but knowing that, you know, we didn't, we weren't allowing funerals. We weren't allowing, uh, you, know, mass, you know, gatherings for, for, um, uh, for people to get together to mourn. And so that was challenging and we did work, you know, we made some little accommodations to help support some families with that. But we many times having to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't have a community celebration of life for somebody or those are really hard because because those are as part of the healing for people through these tragic events. Those are so critical and we, we, we couldn't have them. Were you ever challenged or called out personally around some of the decisions that you you were involved with making in our uh, pandemic response um not not i think we started to get it was it wasn't the shutting down that was it was that when we finally got to where we were starting to open up you know we got into may and and, and people there was this growing kind of uh people wanting us to go faster um, and that was where we started got some criticism uh, from that perspective. That, uh, but you know, we continue to say, and it is we need to open up slowly and cautiously. And again, I credit the premier for being fully supportive of that, despite all the pressures. People just wanted to open up again and do, and and we we didn't really open up until July when we finally opened up the Atlantic bubble. And even through summer there, you know, people, we weren't fully opened up, uh, but it took us uh, probably um, a number of weeks uh, uh, behind, if you will, other provinces uh, before we took some of the steps to open up. Um, but we were, as we were doing that and we were being slow and cautious, we were seeing the resurgence already and, uh, and the impact in other parts of the country of opening up too quickly before you have the disease well under control. So again, those kind of being in a place where looking around ourselves, compa comparing ourselves and observing what's happening and learning, if you will, from others that, you know, going too quickly, too fast actually doesn't, doesn't help you out that a slow, cautious approach 
uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's a marathon. And, uh, you know, if you go racing ahead, you're going to burn yourself out or have, you know, uh, a, a, a significant setback. And so, but it was challenging because there was a lot of pressure to just, just open up. Um, what do you feel you and your staff and, and I guess too, even the, everyone across government learned from the experience of that first lockdown? The first lockdown was like a heavy hammer. You just shut down everything. Uh, and I think as we've seen what it takes and what really works and what's not, what you don't need to shut down in the second wave in the fall, you've seen, we've had a much more, uh, most of the, most of the economy has been able to stay open and we focused uh, appropriately. So much more on uh, parts of the economy that are built around socialization, people getting together, restaurant entertainment, because that's how this virus is spread. So I think what we've, we've learned is being able to be much more surgical in our approach to get the same control of the virus and therefore minimizing those impacts. What do you feel we can take away from, and it's not over, but what do you feel we can take away from what has happened thus far to inform how we deal with similar events when they happen in the future? A couple of things is that, that I focus on. One is that uh, an event like this is, requires a cross-government uh, response. That it's, even though it's a health issue led by public health, everybody's got to be at the table across government and even across our society because of the impacts are, are so broad reaching and then the tools that you need to use to control it are so far reaching as well. So it has to be a kind of an all hands on deck approach. Um, and I've, that's been a hallmark of our success that normally bureaucratic organizational barriers that we that are hard to break down uh everybody's got their own turf and their own budget and their own this and that um all disappeared uh, and i've got so many examples of how the people have just come together and go how do we make this happen um that you know the most of the public isn't aware of but the, the incredible work across government even by every department doing what's necessary and the same in the health system so that's one thing about we learn and, and maybe that's something that we actually we could actually tackle other issues by saying it's urgent it's a priority let's all get around the table and work and solve it <laughs> right? absolutely another big thing i think is that i'd love to you know capture is that the the pandemic has identified substantive vulnerabilities in our communities. There are parts of our communities that are much greater risk and a much of getting uh, of being impacted significantly impacted by the next pandemic. And also in day to day, they bear an unnecessary and, and, and un unequal burden of a whole range of health issues. So whether it's our senior care, and there's a whole conversation in this country about how we care for our elderly. It's about people who are homeless, marginalized, or vulnerable communities. Uh, the pandemic has highlighted those. And so what are we going to do about those two? And even if you want to say, how do we, are we better prepared? How do we make all those different communities less vulnerable for the next pandemic? Um, and the third thing is that I love to, how do we, 
uh, and I think it's been a hallmark again of Nova Scotia's success. We have come together and said we're going to do things to that are that are for and put put our collective good first, and we're going to do things no matter how challenging they may be for me, my family, my business. I'm doing that because I know it's for the for greater good. And so how do we hold on to that piece as well, that we are uh, maybe a stronger sense of community, a stronger sense of equity and sharing and looking after each other um, and being able to give up you know, less about ourselves and more about our community and putting that first. And uh, how do we hang on to that piece as well? So in closing, Rob, what would you most want Nova Scotians to hear from you about the months to come? The short term, we have uh, a lot of hard work still to remain safe while we get our vaccine rolled out, because that is a very important tool. It doesn't solve everything, but it provides a substantive level of, of, of safety um, for the, then the longer term. We are going to have to live with COVID, uh, you know, as we get into the summer and fall. Nobody really knows for sure what that exactly means, how much of what we're doing we have to hang on to. But once we have a well-vaccinated population, then a, a lot of the tight restrictions and all the real significant limitations, I think we can back away from. Uh, and it's more about all of us being more cautious in in how we, you know, how we get together in large numbers and, you know, maybe we still hang on to things like masking because that prevents influenza and other diseases, especially during the winter, better hand washing and just paying more attention to the risk of infectious diseases in general. Well, Rob, I have said this to you before, and um, I, I know you've heard it from many, but I will say it again as a way for us to wrap this conversation that um, as a fellow citizen of this province, I have been um, just blown away by the leadership that that you've shown. And it's not just about the decisions that you've made, but the the empathy and understanding with in how you've communicated those those uh, decisions. And dare I say the love that you've shown for your fellow Nova Scotians throughout this process, I am unendingly grateful to you. Well, Chaz, thank you. And uh, maybe we shouldn't be embarrassed of saying we love each other. And that's why we do this stuff is because all of, ultimately we're putting our love for each other first and how do we look after each other and we shouldn't be uh, ashamed or uh, embarrassed to, to say that. That's that's what's driving this. So, but I appreciate it, and I always have to say, uh, I'm uh, because of my position, I'm kind of like the front person of this, and I'm the most visible. But there are hundreds and hundreds of very talented people in across government, across the health system, who have worked endlessly and tirelessly for the last year uh, to 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 uh, to keep Nova Scotians safe. So I. I have to recognize all of them. Well said. Thanks so much, Rob. If you'd like to learn more about Rob, you can check out his Wikipedia page for a brief background on his life and career. And if you'd like some assistance with your own tough calls, we've compiled a collection of free tools just for you. Go to toughestcall.com to check them out. 
If you're not yet a subscriber to Toughest Call, please add us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation helps you when faced with your next tough call. 